Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Brutal dictator or the saviour of parliamentary democracy. The slaughterer of the Irish or brilliant military strategist. To this day, Oliver Cromwell evokes strong emotions from historians and the public alike when studying his controversial legacy. My name is Stephen Edgington, and in this week's episode of History Defended, I will be exploring England's first and last Lord Protector. To take me through Cromwell's extraordinary story, from his humble beginnings with no military background, to his becoming one of the greatest European generals of his age, and the man who toppled an English king, is Paul Lay, the editor of History Today. I started by asking Paul who Oliver Cromwell was, and why his legacy is still hotly debated. Well, Oliver Cromwell was descended from a Welsh landowning family, originally called Williams. And Cromwell was born of Puritan stock. How Puritan he was at the beginning, hard to say. He always seemed to suffer from something akin to what we would now call depression. He developed some kind of religious conversion, became much more concerned with his readings of the Bible. There's a particularly important letter from the late 1630s to one of his cousins in which he demonstrates his great reading of the Bible, his obsession uh, with biblical themes, and I suppose above all with the concept of providence. Can you describe some of the context of the period in terms of religious divides within England and how important religion was to Oliver Cromwell? Religion is hugely important to Cromwell. I think it's at the root of understanding him. He's very difficult, I think, to understand to the modern mind because of his providential worldview. He believes, as many Puritans did, in an enchanted world in a world where everything that happened occurred because of God's will. There wasn't anything, the smallest act of a sparrow, the hairs on your head, to victory in combat were all under the auspices of God. And what made that even more profound for someone like Cromwell is the idea of predestination. It's a kind of Calvinist Protestant concept of predestination, which you can describe as something like a surveillance society of the soul. This is a religious belief that 
thinks that the fate of every man and woman on earth had been decided at the creation of the world. So unlike in Catholicism, for example, good deeds counted for nothing. You had been damned or saved at the beginning of time and there was nothing you could do about it. All you could do was look for signs that you were part of the elect. And perhaps the most obvious sign was victory on the battlefield. That showed that God's will was behind you. The Protestant wind of the Armada, for example, just before Cromwell was born, but very much part of that English Protestant worldview, this idea of English exceptionalism, that England was, as Israel had been to the Old Testament, England was to the New. The English were God's chosen people. And the Puritans within this were the elect of an elect, and Cromwell, I think, considered himself one of those. But his worldview, I would argue, was very Elizabethan. I've spoken about the amount of reading he did of the Bible, so far as secular tracts went. The only one we know of any significance that he was familiar with is Walter Raleigh's History of the World. And Walter Raleigh, of course, immensely important to that Elizabethan, buccaneering, English providential worldview, Puritan, Protestant as well, is a kind of blueprint for Cromwell's ideas of Englanders the elect nation and it's so it's tied up with a kind of nationalism and it's tied up with religion and it's tied up with a very very strong providential English identity and that's the milieu which he comes from because he's opposed through that to Charles the first's idea which is much more influenced I would argue by European absolutism and I think there's an interesting point to make here is that we often think of the parliamentarian side the side that Cromwell was play such a prominent role in, as being the radicals, as being the revolutionaries, as being the people on the side of modernity. I think that's a completely false judgment, a completely false view. The real pioneer in this period is Charles I, because it's him who picks up on the new European idea that finds its apotheosis in Louis XIV of France, for example, but he's also there in the Habsburg worldview of European absolutism. That's the new ideology. It's in many ways Charles, who is the radical, and people like Cromwell and those people around him and the Conservatives. They're the people who believe in, and they often talk about, the Norman yoke. They often reference Magna Carta. They talk about the Anglo-Saxon, the old constitution. This is very much their idea of an ancient English idea of liberty, freedom, parliament. Coming up to the first English civil war, did Cromwell have any kind of military experience whatsoever? And linking in with later in his career, where he's accused of being brutal, he's accused of massacring the Irish, for example, was this clear early on in his life at this point? Well, the most extraordinary thing about Cromwell, who I think is generally considered to be one of the great generals of British history, if not European history, is that he had no military experience at all until he was about 43 years of age. Now, he was plainly a person who could handle a horse. 
He'd been a farmer, of course. He was part of that agricultural gentry. And he seems to be a person of considerable charisma. He was a man who took a great deal of interest in the troops that he knew. And he was also a brilliant propagandist, brilliant self-serving propagandist. And he got people like Thomas Harrison, who would later play a significant role in his political life, Colonel Harrison, as he was then, to spread the word that this man was brilliant, that this man was a great commander, stressing the loyalty that was there. But there's something very elusive about Cromwell, because his actual achievements on the battlefield are actually difficult to quantify. Certainly at Master Moore, he led a cavalry chart, it appears on the left, but even then, there's a lot of questions left unanswered about his actual contribution to those battles that still remains somewhat elusive. Even the story of him being called an Ironside, which was attributed to Prince Rupert, seems to have been a myth made up, or may well be a myth, made up by his allies, his friends, his supporters. And there's still a great deal of work, if ever there can be any conclusion brought to that, as to what his actual contribution was as a general. What was Cromwell's motivation to fight in the First English Civil War? And was he a Republican at this time or at any time? I don't think that Cromwell was ever a fervent Republican. In fact, I don't think he was ever a Republican at all. I think he was a supporter of the Crown in Parliament. And he wasn't alone in that. Fairfax, the great commander of the army, was certainly a man who wished to do a deal with Charles. I think there were so many attempts to make peace with Charles, despite the awful suffering of the Civil War, and it was immense suffering uh, inflicted on men and the wider population during that first Civil War. And I think the idea of taking retribution on Charles, particularly after the Second Civil War, which was seen by those contesting it as a needless slaughter, that opportunities had been given to Charles to retain his throne, to come back to Parliament, to have a real long-term settlement, and he'd betrayed that. And that is when Charles gains this epithet of the man of blood a man who'd been a traitor to his own people, who had been the cause of endless, needless suffering. And I think that's when the frustrations kicked in with the hardcore parliamentarians, particularly those associated with the army, like Cromwell. And it's indeed then that I think Cromwell really comes to the fore when much of his military career is done. He comes to the fore as a politician particularly in the trial and execution of Charles I. Was Cromwell a religious extremist? For example, some people compare him to a Taliban terrorist who is willing to fight and to die for his God. I don't think, by the standards of his time, he is a religious radical in a strong sense. I think what he stands for is a capacious religious settlement. What I mean by that is he opposes both Church of England, led by bishops, and he does not identify with Presbyterianism, 
which is the strongest of the kind of Puritan factions, and it's what most people in Parliament support. What he is, is an independent. That means he is supporting those people like Congregationalists, which he himself was, Baptists, the people who are see themselves as free churches, these gathered churches that have quite loose ideas of theology, as long as one believes in the Trinity. And that's what he believes in a capacious one. Obviously, he's not keen on Catholicism, to say the least, But even then, he cultivates friends with certain Catholics. And I don't think by his nature, he is a man who is a great prosecutor of those who take different religious stances. And I think this is particularly evident at the concerns he has when Presbyterians in Parliament try the Quaker dissident James Naylor, which comes to trial. Um, in the late 1650s, when Cromwell is the protector, and he warns his fellow prosecutors of the arbitrariness of their actions against this outlier, this religious radical. And I think it reveals something about Cromwell's essentially tolerant, and I mean that in a religious sense, nature. The comparison with the Taliban I always find quite interesting, because One of the most fascinating aspects of Cromwell, I think, in terms of the makeup of his personality, is his relationship with women. This is no misogynist. This is a man who is brought up with six sisters, who has a profoundly close, luxurious relationship with his wife, Elizabeth Bouchier. He is tremendously close to his daughters, and he has the very real commitment, I think, to education of women that is often a hallmark of Puritans, Protestants at this time. Yes, by the standards of now, there's certain things we certainly wouldn't be comfortable with. But by the standards of his time, and as an individual, Cromwell is nothing like the kind of misogynistic, Taliban-esque figure that is often portrayed. He's very comfortable with women. I mean, this is an argument that's been put forward recently by the historian Rebecca Warren, and I think very convincingly that there is something about Cromwell's ease, his comfort in the company of women, that's actually very attractive. Was it moral of Cromwell to demand Charles's execution? He was, of course, the third signature on his death warrant. And was it justified at the time? Was it a bloodthirsty thing to do? I think it was an act of frustration, more than anything else, for the reasons I've already outlined. I don't think it was an act fundamentally against monarchy. I think there could have been reasons. Certainly not as far as Cromwell went. There were many in the army who were genuine Republicans. People like Scott, Hesselrig, and of course, the great apologist for Republicanism, John Milton. When Cromwell does come to the fore during the Protectorate in in 1653, they're very conscious of a betrayal of what they call the good old cause. But I don't think Cromwell ever really identifies the execution of Charles I as a profoundly republican act. It is an act against a king who has betrayed his people and has gone to war with them.
I'm Sophia Yan, the Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this. Let's move on to the most controversial period in Cromwell's life, and that is his invasion of Ireland, his campaign in Ireland in 1649. Irish historians and Irish people today still remember the supposed massacres of the Catholics, of the Royalists at the time in Ireland. And there's two questions on this. First of all, did Cromwell support the killing of civilians in Ireland? And did he support what we would call today war crimes? Now, the examples they give are of priests being murdered, of churches being set alight with people burnt inside alive. So did he support the killing of civilians in Ireland? And did he support the use of what we would now call war crimes? It is a very complicated subject. It's also part of a very long narrative, the Cromwell's campaign in Ireland, which lasts barely nine months. I think a good analogy is to think about Cromwell's house in Ely. It's a house he bought after his fortunes were restored in the 1630s. It became a base. He owned it for about 20 years. He lived there for much less than that. But it's known as Cromwell's house to this day, and it's a very good museum. It's well worth a visit. But I'm not sure how much it reveals about Cromwell himself from the structure of the house, because he wasn't there that long. And I think that's rather similar to Cromwell's role in Ireland if you take the longer 800-year picture of the English and then the British in Ireland. This is by no means the most lethal campaign in Irish history, in Anglo-Irish history. If you look at what happened at the end of the Elizabethan period, you see far greater figures and far more of what I would call genocide during the Nine Years' War at the end of the 16th century. But Cromwell is part of that. And I think in the immediate context of Cromwell's actions, you have to think of the way the Irish Rebellion of 1641 was both transmitted and understood in England. It was one of those things that I compared to Fox's book of Martyrs. It was Protestants exaggerating the often brutal actions of the Irish rebels. There were outrages on both sides, but this became part of the narrative of the civil war. And Ireland was very much seen as the base from which Charles 
would betray his people again by making it his base, bringing an Irish army over to England and to regain his kingdom. And this became almost hysterical, particularly, I think, after the Second Civil War, when Charles became this man of blood. And I think there was a decision to put an end to this Irish rebel culture once and for all. There's absolutely no doubt it was deeply anti-Catholic. And I think it was also regarded the Irish, Irish Catholics that is, as barbarous people, literally beyond the pale. Though I think the comparisons with Hitler or Einsatzgruppen in uh, Eastern and Central Europe during the Second World War is, doesn't really work at all and is rather ludicrous. And that's a really important point you make because Cromwell is still remembered in Ireland today for his supposed war crimes. And one of the points that historians in Ireland would make is that in Scotland, when Cromwell faced a similar royalist rebellion, he was far more lenient on the Scots than he was on the Irish. And of course, the Scottish were Protestants rather than Catholics. So do you think it's fair to say that Cromwell's campaign in Ireland was fuelled by revenge, was fuelled by a hatred an ethnic hatred for the Irish, a sort of ethnic cleansing of the Irish population. Oh, that's absolutely the case. I mean, I wouldn't argue with that at all. I mean, uh, I think the Scots Presbyterians, which most of them were, were seen as Protestants. They were tolerated. I don't think there was any great love for the Scots, but they were tolerated. They were recognised as fellow Protestants and people who'd taken part in the Civil War years, the Civil War struggle, and they were a tolerated polity. It was nothing like the Irish experience. The 1641 rebellion, whatever the realities of that rebellion, the mythology that surrounded it made the Irish, building on centuries of anti-Irish prejudice, had turned the Irish into barbarians in the English imagination, particularly the kind of Puritan imagination. Uh, absolutely no doubt about that. And there was definitely a strong ethnic idea to the actions taken, and that, that many of them, particularly I'm talking about the native Irish Catholics here, Gaelic population, were treated abysmally, but not just by Cromwell. This was part of English culture going back hundreds of years and certainly to the Elizabethan period. The end of the Elizabethan period actions against the Irish were absolutely brutal elements of what we would now call ethnic cleansing. But I think the 1641 rebellion and the mythology that surrounded that only heightened that hysteria. And we know what happened in the following centuries in terms of Anglo-Irish and um, Irish and British relationships. And this is part of that long, long history. So was this, in effect, Cromwell's darkest hour? Uh, yes, I think it probably was, yeah. Because I think on the whole, when it came to England and Scotland, the idea that, say, what's often put that it was a military dictatorship is, I think, overplayed. I mean, whatever Cromwell's ambitions, it simply wasn't possible in the 17th century to have anything like the kind of totalitarian regimes that uh, marked the 20th century. I mean, the communications wasn't there, the infrastructure wasn't there. I mean, it just simply wasn't possible. The state was not that big by that point. It's, it wasn't that powerful. But I don't actually think the ambitions were there with Cromwell either. I think he was very frustrated by parliaments. I think he was a man of considerable anger 
and frustration, of mood swings. But I think ultimately he wasn't that interested in this realm. I think he was always doing, in his eyes, God's work. And that was the most important thing. And ultimately he was answerable to God more than he was answerable to kings or parliaments. In 1653, Cromwell, in effect, becomes the new monarch or pseudo-monarch of England. He becomes what's known as the Lord Protector. And throughout history, Cromwell has been criticised as a hypocrite for becoming a pseudo-monarch when he was the man, of course, who executed Charles I. So do you think that he was a hypocrite for becoming the Lord Protector? Well, as I said before, he'd never been a Republican. He'd never not been a monarchist. I don't think the Commonwealth that was set up before he became protector didn't really have any great appeal through the country. It was tolerated because it brought security, and that's very, very important at a, at a period when people's lives, due to harvest, due to all kinds of reasons, due to plague, whatever, were often fragile, and they brought stability. The army did bring stability. Army rule brought stability. That's absolutely true. But I think Cromwell was a pragmatist, I think he knew that this was not a settlement. He often talks about healing and settling. And I don't think he ever really thought that a commonwealth, the kind of polity that someone like Milton would support, was ever sustainable in the long run, whatever his critics might say, and however he might be accused of betraying the good old cause. One accusation against Cromwell is that he ruled as a dictator. And the evidence people give for this is that he ruled by decree, he dissolved Parliament several times. He purged people within Parliament he didn't like. He fell out with the Quakers. His treatment of the Quakers was criticised. And of course, his treatment of the Levellers, a group of Puritans within his army who mutinied, was also massively criticised. So was he a dictator? I mean, it depends what we mean by dictator. This theme emerged quite a lot during the 1930s, particularly with the rise of Mussolini, I think. And Cromwell was compared to these figures. Whatever his desires, and I don't think he did desire to be a dictator, because if he did, why did he not take the crown? He's not a person who's particularly bothered about personal wealth. I think he's pretty incorruptible. He doesn't have the infrastructure anyway. I mean, it's simply not possible to anything like a 20th century dictatorship in the 17th century, such as the weakness of the state. But I simply don't see Cromwell as being a dictator. As for his relationships with the Quakers, they're actually quite good. One of the last people to see him was the Quaker leader, George Fox, who said you know, he looks like death when he sees him riding just days before his illness. He was a person who was very open with people. And indeed, I think, as I've said, during the trial of James Naylor, he was one of those who warned the most fervent persecutors of him to back away because one day it could be you. That's pretty much what he said to them. So, no, I don't see him as anything like the kind of dictators we had in the 20th century. He's a man who looked, I think, for consensus among his people. We have to see it through a religious worldview. The only person he genuinely regards in the highest esteem is God. It is God's work he seeks to do. I think he's relatively tolerant for the period. I mean, we may judge him differently, but I just don't see the parallels between Cromwell 
and 20th century or modern dictators at all. One of the things you learn about Oliver Cromwell when you're a child is his supposed hatred of anything fun. He's supposed to have banned Christmas, he's supposed to have banned drunkenness. Is there any truth in these accusations? Well, there are Puritans and Puritans. I mean, the ban on Christmas was done in the early 1640s when Parliament was a stronghold of Puritanism as it was throughout the 1640s and 1650s. There were certainly people who were far more puritanical than Cromwell. Indeed, Cromwell was not especially puritanical in taste, certainly nothing like the extreme people. He surrounded himself with quite um, erotic art at his apartments in Hampton Court, for example. He was a great lover of music. He had the organ of Magdalen College brought to his apartments where he could listen to music. Opera was first performed and first composed in England during the Protectorate. He was a great lover of vile music, which was a very, very social form. And at one of his daughter's weddings, he started throwing sack at people, sack posset, which is kind of milk with sherry in it, over the women in order to stay in their coats. I mean, he was drunk, I think. He was also dancing with people. Again, not at all typical in terms of his relationships with women. This was not a misogynist. Uh, I think in many ways he's extraordinarily open-minded. But I think we might reveal more as we understand perhaps a manic depressive aspect to Cromwell, which I think is very real. But he's not a typical Puritan, I don't think. And I think you only have to have pictures of him when he's head of state. He knows the power of image, even when he's, uh, particularly when he's dealing with diplomats from Venice or France, for example. His personal relationships, as I said, with Catholics, Quakers, are all very good, very open. He's a very, very contradictory figure in many ways. I don't think he's particularly complex, as people say, but I think he is contradictory. He's no intellectual. But I think his mood swings suggest to me an element of the manic depressive about him. So we get to the final question. What is your overall defence of Oliver Cromwell, if you have one? Well, I'd never offer a defence. You know, I'm not an advocate of Cromwell. I'm very much against activist history. I just look at Cromwell and those around him in his times and I just say what I see. I'm not blind to Cromwell's imperfections, of which there are many, but neither am I blind to his achievements, which are considerable, nor am I blind to what is an extraordinary uh, man in extraordinary times, which I think is what makes him compelling. But I would never be here to defend any historical figure. It's very difficult to do so anyway within our own terms because it's very difficult to judge and it's probably wrong and anachronistic to judge a figure by our own terms. But what you do think is true about Cromwell is that each age has a Cromwell that suits them or talks to them. And that, I suppose, is the enduring legacy of Cromwell, whether we're talking about the real person or, more often, the myths that surround him. So should Cromwell's statue outside of Parliament be torn down, or should we remember him as the man who saved British democracy? We want to know what you think. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, 
leave us a review and let us know. This is the final episode of this limited series. We'll be back soon. If you have an historical figure you want us to investigate, please let us know by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. History Defended is a Telegraph original podcast. Find out more and listen at telegraph.co.uk slash podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.